News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. It's Tuesday, the 31st of August, 2021. Can you believe it? We're already eight months into the year as we begin the last month of the third quarter of the year tomorrow. That'll be the 1st of September. I'm Justin Roberts. My colleagues Alec Hogg, Stuart Lohman and Nadia Swart are at the Biz News Spring Conference at the Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg. That's if you missed yesterday's program. The three-day event kicks off today and we'll bring you some of the footage from the conference tomorrow. That's sure to be a humdinger in itself. But talking about humdingers, we've got an action-packed program for you to bite your teeth into tonight. First up, our partners at the FT, that's the Financial Times in London. They'll bring you up to speed with their daily news briefing, always informative. There's been a lot of change this week with Alex, Stu and Nadia away. But something that stayed consistent is our Tuesday Business Power Hour co-host. That's 10X founder Stephen Nathan. He tucks into the NASPAS process 70 billion rand acquisition of Indian payments gateway firm Billdesk. NASPAS have done a lot of corporate action. There's been a lot of acquisitions from Bob van Dyke and his management team. Will this be the next 10 cent? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Other than that acquisition, Stephen Nathan goes into three big JSC counters that announced results today. That's Harmony Gold, Education Provider Advertech, and Old Mutual. Secondly, Bronwyn Nielsen talks to the Royal Union's Stuart Pringle regarding the logistics and quantum of SASRIA. SASRIA is the South African Special Risk Insurance Company. You'll remember not so long ago, there was big riots in KZN and parts of Gauteng, up to around 40,000 businesses affected. Of those businesses, it's assumed that at least 10,000 will have insurance and as a result will be able to go to SASRIA. The big question is, is whether SASRIA is well capitalized to handle all of those claims. So we'll hear from Stuart Pringle. And then the show finishes off with an interview I had with Rima Sarkhan, the CEO of British streaming on-demand provider BritBox. They've recently launched in South Africa, and apart from being very competitively priced, just as Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Disney Plus is, they offer unique British content. And Rima seems to think that there's a huge market for that in South Africa. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. In the markets today, the JSE All Share Index was up at 67,500. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies. 14 rand 57 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 08 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 25 cents to the euro. Gold is slightly weaker at $1,811 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $72.20 a barrel, 
and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back approximately 700,000 rand. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, August 31st, and this is your FT News Briefing. QR codes have been replacing retail and restaurant workers during the pandemic, and prices are rising in Germany at a pace not seen in more than a decade. Plus, we'll take a look at how Bank of America is retraining its employees to be more tech-savvy. How much should employee education be the employer's responsibility versus the education system's responsibility? I think that's an open question, but what you are seeing is more employers step up to this plate because they see an upcoming talent shortage. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. In the U.S., the pandemic has made it hard for employers to find service workers, but some of them came up with a solution, QR codes. By scanning these codes at restaurants or retail outlets, customers can complete a transaction right on their phones. No workers need it. But some experts say that the pandemic-induced automation might be a permanent fixture. And we might not see these jobs come back. The FT's labor inequality correspondent, Taylor Nicole Rogers, has been reporting on this. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Mark. Taylor, what's the scale here? How many businesses are experimenting with this kind of tech? I would say that most businesses in the service and hospitality area are experimenting with this to some degree, whether that's as simple as the menu being available on your phone via QR code or the server being the QR code itself, meaning that you don't actually interact with another human until they bring out your plate. Which is, you know, when we hear about this sort of thing and the the, the scare that comes with automation potentially taking jobs, uh, we, we usually think manufacturing, right? Can you explain why a lot of these businesses turned to this kind of automation during the pandemic? I think it has a lot to do with social distancing, right? So one of the things customers were looking at in the early days of the first lockdowns in March of last year was, where can I go and be as far away from other human beings as possible? So a lot of these solutions started out as ways to lower transmission rates and keep customers safe. But then as the pandemic progressed and workers got harder to find, they also started filling this gap in the labor market that we were seeing. So who's most impacted by this? Economists say that it's mostly going to be women and then people with lower levels of education that will be losing jobs to computers. But it's important to note that these are mostly going to be people who are working in businesses on the lower end of kind of the luxury scale. So if you're a waiter at a high-end, you know, Michelin-starred restaurant where people are expecting to be treated like kings and queens when they go in, I wouldn't be worried about your job. But if you work on the other end of food service, maybe as someone who takes orders through a drive-thru at a fast food restaurant, then I would be worried. But it's also important to note that because of the pandemic, because we've gotten used to living our lives through the screen, customers are also more open to interacting with a kiosk or a QR code instead of a friendly face. Now, we should mention that while this is happening in the U.S., other countries like China and South Korea are already using QR codes to order things. What are experts seeing in terms of the future of automation? The question is going to be, 
is the labor market going to get better? Because if, you know, service workers come back in and take some of these jobs and people get used to interacting with humans again, maybe these jobs will be okay in the long run. But there's also the possibility that businesses are going to get used to how cheap QR codes are to work with and how they can get things done pretty quickly. And then these jobs that we lost during the pandemic just don't come back. Taylor Nicole Rogers is the FT's labor and equality correspondent. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks. Now, the worker shortage in the U.S. has been affecting banks, and they're having an especially tough time finding workers for their growing digital operations. One of the country's biggest banks, Bank of America, is even retraining its tellers and other staff to do coding and data analytics. I'm joined by the FT's U.S. banking correspondent, Imani Moise, to find out more. Hey, Imani. Hi, Mark. So Bank of America is training tellers to be IT specialists? What's that all about, Imani? Yeah, it's actually a program that they've had since 2018, but the program really helped them scale technology skills as everything became automated during the pandemic. So it's open to everyone at the bank from tellers to traders to people who already work in tech, but maybe want to upskill. So that's really how they've been meeting the talent needs that the pandemic has brought forward. Imani, are staff happy about this? Is there a lot of uptake? Are, are, are they eager? It looks that way. I mean, 3 million courses have been taken so far since it launched in 2018, and Bank of America has about 200,000 employees. So if it seems like everyone could have taken at least a few courses, obviously. And you're seeing people get into new roles. And what happened now is they set a goal when they started this university to increase the internal hiring from 39% at the time. And now it's 80%. So clearly, this is successful, and they're able to create the talent that they need. I also have to imagine that a lot of these employees see the writing on the wall, right? Like if you think about it, they can see that a lot of places, including banks, are going digital and they want to stay relevant Then they have to do this kind of training in order to keep their jobs. Absolutely. And that's why I think you're starting to see more companies offer this. So I was talking to the CTO of Bank of America, Kathy Basant, and she said that the roles that she's training for today are really for the jobs of the future. So she wants to encourage as many people within the company to start this training. And then you're also seeing banks like JP Morgan, they started forcing their analysts and the requiring that their analysts in the asset management division start taking coding classes just because they believe that it's a good skill to have. You're also seeing banks invest in the workforce more broadly, not even just for their own firms, but making sure that these skills are being taught. Because I think what you're seeing executives see in the labor market is this on incoming mismatch of skills. Now, this isn't going to fix everything, Imani. There are still a lot of questions, right? Right. I mean, how much should education be or employee education be the employer's responsibility versus the education system's responsibility? I think that's an open question. But what you are seeing is more employers step up to this plate because they see an upcoming talent shortage for specific skills um, and they want to address that. I think this type of training program has not been scaled yet, at least within Bank of America. And in talking to Kathy Basant, that's the next thing on her wish list or to-do list is to institutionalize this type of learning so that when things happen really quickly, as they did in the pandemic, you could retrain a lot of workers, thousands of workers as they retrained last year to meet that need. Imani Moise is the FT's U.S. banking correspondent. Thanks, Imani. Thanks for having me. 
Inflation in Germany just hit a 13-year high. The country's harmonized index of consumer prices rose to 3.4% in August from a year earlier. It's also up from July, and it's the highest level since 2008. So what's the cause? Well, for one thing, Germany's economy is rebounding from the pandemic, but there's also higher energy prices and disruption to global supply chain to blame for higher inflation. The European Central Bank, like the Federal Reserve in the U.S., sees the rise in this year's inflation as transitory, but the ECB's governing council will meet next week, and it'll talk about whether the Eurozone's economy is bouncing back from the pandemic enough to justify slowing down the pace of its bond-buying program. Now, inflation in the U.S. has also been high lately. We've told you about that quite a bit. And it's having an effect on dollar stores. A lot more of these stores have popped up in the past few years. The company Dollar General now operates about 18,000 stores, and Dollar Tree has nearly 16,000. These companies were thriving during times of tame inflation, but with the rising inflation of 2021, well, a buck just doesn't go as far as it used to. Dollar General and Dollar Tree posted earnings last week. They blamed rising shipping costs and wage bills for weighing on margins. So Dollar General is raising some of its prices, and these stores are trying out new things, like adding higher margin fresh produce, testing new formats, and adding pricier products, like curtains, rugs, and clocks. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is 10X Investment Founder and our regular Tuesday co-host, Stephen Nathan. Stephen, when it rains, it pours, and there's certainly a lot of lot happening from a company perspective today. Possibly most interestingly, Bob Van Dyke of Naspers and Process went on another spending spree, purchasing Indian payments gateway company Buildesk for 70 billion rand. Not a small acquisition, a company of this side would waltz into the JSE Top 40. Yet another leap of faith in a management team that has little to show for their efforts in the last five years or so. Yeah, without a doubt. And they, 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 they're going on, as you say, unabated where, uh, you know, the big story obviously is their enormous stake in Tencent, which is uh, worth more than all these other investments they are making. And obviously all the challenges that Tencent and other uh, internet companies are having in China uh, you know, with the government having a policy of uh, much more inclusive growth and looking at sort of eroding profit margin. So it's kind of in a way, it's sort of tinkering at the edges. But on the other hand, you know, they can't influence Chinese government policy. So they, they certainly are trying to prove their worth. And as you say, you know, these are, these are eye-watering numbers, uh, you know, an acquisition of in the region of almost 70 billion rand. Uh, and it, it you know, it has no impact on the company. The, the The share price went up a little bit today, but you know that's because ten cent went up. So, so you know they are trying their best, and um, you know it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting strategy. It's a strategy that you know they have pursued for quite some time, trying to di- diversify away from uh, ten cent and and identify the next ten cent. Uh, you know, and as we know, uh, you know very few companies get that right. We've spoken, for example. Uh, in the past with PSG, where they've had, you know, that knockout performance from Capitech. Uh, and it's very difficult to replicate that. So, you know, they are they are trying. It's a lot of money they're spending. And it's hard, you know, um, given the sort of 
very competitive nature of technology. You know, the challenge you have when you when you're investing in sort of early stage technology companies is firstly technology changes a lot so it's never really clear who the winners and losers are going to be in any uh, space including this payment space it's a very very competitive uh, environment and then you've also got not only have you got a lot of great companies there you've got a lot of great investors so you're competing with you know the smartest uh, venture capital investors from silicon valley and all around the world so you know uh, uh, naspers's ability to pick the winner in this uh, environment is by no means guaranteed. And just to kind of give you some idea, you might know these numbers, but your listeners might find it interesting. You know, this is a company that uh, um, that was founded in 2000. So it's not a new company. Um, and their profit, their last profit for 2021 was $37 million. So they're buying it on 127 PE and uh, Process and 10 cents are both on a 20 PE. So, you know, they're buying companies that are much more highly rated. And that that gives a sense of the competitive nature and also uh, of, I guess you could call it the upside, but also of the risk inherent in such a transaction. There's still a lot of uncertainty in China. No one can accurately forecast what's going to happen there. And as you're saying, Stephen, these high growth tech companies are at all time high valuations. And we've been in a raging bull market for the better part of a decade now. History tells us this can't continue forever. If things turn, it could get seriously ugly for NASPIS with all this M&A activity at the top of the cycle. Yeah, it could be. It could be. But uh, as I said, it's a, you know, in some ways it's a bit of a sideshow because, uh, you know, they're trading at a discount to the investment in Tencent. So the market, although they've just spent an hour watering almost $5 billion, um, but the, the market is not valuing $5 billion at anything. Uh, so, you know, even if these, you know, the market is either saying that these investments are worth nothing uh, anyway. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever the company does, uh, we're giving them no credit for it because they're trading at a discount just to ten cent. Uh, you know, all the market is saying that you know they're going to they're going to they're going to make very poor investment decisions, and these investment decisions aren't going to you know add uh, any material value overall. Um, but at the moment, you know, um, the market is not giving NASPES management and the board for that matter, you know, any credit in their strategy, because if they were giving credit to, um, you know, the financial engineering and the reverse listings and everything else that's going on, uh, the discount would be a lot narrower than it is. So, you know, management's doing what they can do, but obviously shareholders in the market, you know, are telling them, you know, giving them a very strong alternative message. But at the moment, they're not listening to that message. It's almost as if NASPIS is this perfect, perfect private equity-like vehicle with billions of rands at its disposal for Bob van Dyke and Basil Sordos to run amok. At the end of the day, a smart man like Kurt Becker must have a lot of faith in them. Yes, well, well, um, you know, the challenge, the challenge with NASPIS is that it has a control structure where a very small percentage of the economic interest controls the voting rights, um, and and you know. Um, uh, uh, Chris Becker would be in that very elite group. And as you say, you know, they, they, they obviously, I think, have a different agenda. I think that when you're someone like Chris Becker and you've helped uh, build NASPES uh, to what it is, you know, you've taken it from a sort of South African uh, media company into one of the most successful global internet companies. You know, you've got a very different sort of emotional attachment to this investment. Uh, he is independently wealthy. He's a dollar billionaire. Uh, so I think there's, there's, there's sort of, you know, there's, there's different incentives and motives that drive, let's say, a Kurs Becker. And then if you're sitting at Bob Pondike as management, you know, you've, 
you're getting incredibly well paid to you know play in the internet space, which is something you enjoy. Um, you know, but shareholders have a different profile. You know, they're just looking to uh, earn a good return and try and unlock value. Um, but this is not a democratic uh, company in the sense that it's not it's not one share one vote. Um, so there's a lot of risk uh, that goes with NicePass, and this risk is not new. It's been known, but I think when you know in the good times, uh, investors didn't really pay too much attention to the uh, the voting structure, or for that matter, uh, the actual legal uh, uh, viability of what they call these variable interest entities, uh, where you don't really own the company in China, you own a right to some of the profits uh, going through the Cayman Islands. So you know, in the bad times, uh, you know, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out. You know, people people kind of see who's been swimming without clothes and they pay much more attention to these risks that are not new risks. Uh, they just become much more elevated uh, in our minds. Bit of a swift change of topic from tech to commodities, but Harmony Gold out with results. Without focusing too much on their results as a standalone, do you like to allocate a portion of your portfolio um, in gold as a hedge against uncertainty and things like inflation? Yeah, so, you know, I've never been a big uh, gold bull, uh, you know, and some South Africans will be very cross because we seem to have a big affinity to <laughs> to gold given our history. Um, you know, gold, uh, you know, it's an interesting asset uh, because, um, you know, uh, in previous sort of decades uh, when, when the world was on the gold standard, there was, you know, there was a use for gold outside of jewelry. It was a store of value that central banks needed to hold a certain amount of gold in order to control their sort of currency. So, you know, it wasn't just that gold had a value as a precious metal. It had a, it had a, a, an alternative value. And what's really been interesting is that, you know, the world has been off the gold standard for, for many decades now. Um, but central banks still like to hold gold as some kind of a store of value and some kind of a hedge. And and no one's really clear what the hedge is, but they kind of say, well, you know, uh, it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a store against inflation, or it's a store against everything else melting down. Um, but the inherent value in gold, outside as a precious metal, uh, there is no inherent value uh, outside of uh, you know outside of what it's worth in jewelry. So it's a not exactly like cryptocurrency, but it certainly is one where um, you know the, the, there's 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 a perceived value as opposed to an actual value because you don't if you hold gold it actually costs you money to hold gold because you've got to store it in a vault. It's not as though you get an income. It's not like a property or um, when you own a company you get a dividend. Um, and if you look at long, you know the long term track record of gold in dollars has not been great. It's 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 only beaten inflation by a marginal amount. You know, if you look even over the last 30 years, uh, which has been quite a good period for gold, uh, the return in dollars uh, has been under 5% per annum. So it's not a disastrous return, but it's not a great return. Now, obviously, as a RAND, as a South African, you know, you're also getting the um, the dollar strength or the RAND weakness, you know, and that can add another, say, 3 4%. So it's not a terrible return. But you know, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not a great uh, gold fan. It's uh, the, the people that have really made money in gold are those that trade it well because uh, it's really much more of a trading asset than a long term asset. So, I mean, if you had to hold the stock market uh, versus gold over any long term period, the stock market would have done much better. But then there'll be there's always people who said, yeah, but I bought gold at you know two hundred dollars and I sold it at you know one thousand five hundred dollars an ounce. Um, but that's more the exception than the norm. 
No, that makes sense, Stephen. I was actually looking at Harmony's 10-year graph. It was like a mountain with cliffs that send you into free fall from 100 rand back to 10 rand, back to 100 rand, now at 50 rand. But another swift change of topic, uh, onto Advertech, they came out with results. They own Varsity College, which is probably the best private education provider in the country. I was at UCT in 2018, and there were many activist groups burning property and causing chaos, often to the extent that classes were shifted to online learning. Do you think there's a big future in the varsity college-like private education space in South Africa? Yes, I think that, uh, you know, as you say, um, you know, the standard of, of, of sort of government uh, education at the tertiary level uh, is really being questioned. Uh, and I think if you look at our sort of our rankings globally, um, you know, it's not a disaster, but we certainly are gradually, gradually slipping down. We don't have a university that is in the top 100 in any recognized uh, uh, study. Whereas if you went back, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, we would have we, we, we would have been there. So I think there's a, you know, there is an acknowledgement that, uh, you know, universities have to cater for far broader spectrum of, uh, 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 you know, of constituents. And in some faculties, you know, uh, standards are slipping. And as you say, um, you know, the, the, the sort of unrest, I think, uh, uh, you know, had a big impact on people's ability to study and the certainty of studying um, and, you know, would definitely mean that, uh, you know, there's an increased need uh, for alternative, uh, you know, private sector education at the tertiary level. So, you know, that that has been there. But I think in general, if you look at private education in South Africa, both at the, the primary level and or the, 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 you know, the schooling level, if we look at the Caros and if we look at the tertiary, I think it's been disappointing. I think we've all kind of recognized that, you know, there, there should be quite a big demand for it. But I think there's probably there's probably two factors uh, that have held back the potential thus far. You know, the one is that, um, you know, if you look at sort of employment stats, um, you know, uh, uh, people people are not getting wealthier. In fact, they're getting poorer. So there's fewer people that I think that can afford it. I mean, there was a really interesting study uh, that came out. I think it was the UCT Liberty Institute. Um, and they looked they, they, they looked at from February of 2020, so of last year, to March of this year. Uh, and they, they looked at it by income category. Uh, and sort of we know that like, you know, over a million jobs were lost. So, 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 so that we know. But their, their highest category is people earning over 40,000 Rand per month. Uh, and in South Africa uh, in 2020, February 2020, there was under, just under 500,000 uh, individuals in that category. Um, but a year later, that had dropped to just under 400,000. So, so there was almost a 25% reduction in people in that salary band. And so there were fewer people earning the kind of salaries they can afford to, you know, send children to private education. And, and also within that, what happened is that the average actually salary also fell. So the average salary in that band was 64,000 Rand a year ago, and that had fallen to 55,000. So, you know, um, the, the, the economic impact that people are experiencing uh, means that fewer people can go, you know, can, can, can actually, you know, afford it. And I think we've seen that in their numbers. If you look at um, Advertech's numbers, they grew something like 5% is in, in about 12 to 14 months. That's the number of uh, students they have both in their uh, schooling and tertiary. So, you know, the, the kind of uptake is not what one would think. 
Uh, and then secondly, obviously, the cost of running universities and 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 having an online and an offline presence, because a lot of these universities, you know, you can't just switch down, you know, close off your bricks and mortar. You've got to do both. Uh, so you 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 don't necessarily have a uh, more cost efficient model. You might have a model that's more scalable, um, but we just haven't seen those numbers come through. Um, so so it still is a challenging sector, but you know, hopefully, it is one that has. You know, um, good good promise because the demand is there, but people need the affordable the affordability to be able to pay these higher prices. Yeah, and to your point, Stephen, Curra actually lost two percent of their um, their base in the middle of the year. Students just fleeing as a result of not enough disposable income for education. But lastly, Old Mutual they released decent interim numbers and declared a dividend. Share is quite nicely up. However, it just seems that this once powerhouse is becoming more and more relevant in the South African financial services industry as the more innovative businesses are eating their lunch. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, if you look at sort of, you know, uh, uh, old mutual and I mean, if you go back, depends on how far you want to go back. But, you know, if we went back, I guess, you know, maybe something like 30 years, you know, you had sort of dominant institutions, you know, had like Anglo-American and South African breweries. And, you know, because of the hothouse effect, because they couldn't invest outside of South Africa, they just kept on plowing their profits back into buying, you know, so mine would, you know, buy a bank and a life insurance company and, you know, Old Mutual and Sunlam would also have been like that. Um, and, you know, what has happened is that, uh, you know, a lot of these companies have, uh, they've unbundled sort of their non-core businesses. So they, their share size is smaller, which is actually good uh, because it does free up the, uh, the, the economy. But as you say, a company like Old Mutual, a traditional life insurance company, uh, is really struggling. They're struggling because of the uh, the poor macro environment. So, as we said, you know, with 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 um, employment falling, uh, you know, they've got you know fewer people are able to save. There's fewer people employed, so that means less people on pension funds that Old Mutual would administer. Um, there's also been COVID, so they've had life companies have had a dramatic increase in their claims. So they paid out much more in claims. Uh, they've had the rights to deal with. Uh, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty difficult uh, environment. Um, and, you know, if you look at Old Mutual's profit for the six months, you know, the, the number that I there would, would, would focus on is if you look at their, what they call their profit before, uh, before uh, COVID uh, uh, expenses. And that, you know, that, that profit grew 8% uh, in, the, in the six months. And the actual quantum, it, it grew by 330 million. Um, but if you look at the individual components, what they call the mass market, which is the entry level business, so that would be like group schemes, uh, funeral business, uh, that grew 785 million. So, so that grew 785 million, uh, and the, the overall business grew 330 million, which tells you that everything else actually went backwards. So, like the kind of things that a lot of people I think would associate Old Mutual with, maybe uh, their, their, their life insurance policies, their wealth business. Uh, insure, which is the old mutual and federal, uh, the investment business, uh, the sort of employee benefit business, rest of Africa, that's actually all going backwards. Um, so, so, you know, if you look at it on that basis, it's not a particularly good uh, result at, at, at sort of a divisional level. There was one division that did really well. Uh, and the challenge old mutual has is that it's a very mature, large company. Um, you know, the, if you look at their net flows, they also had net cash outflows, which meant that they paid more money out than what they than what they got, got in. So they are a mature company, but at the same stage, same time, having said that, there's still potentially value in Old Mutual. You know, their numbers showed that what they call their sort of embedded value and the appraisal value of all their businesses 
is in the region of, I think they said about 25 Rand a share. It's about 100 billion Rand. Uh, and their market cap is sort of at, uh, uh, their share price is about 15 Rand. So there is still a value gap, but, you know, they haven't demonstrated an ability to grow profitably and to generate good returns on the capital in that investment. So that's the challenge they have. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to 10X founder, Stephen Nathan. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen, and we're joined now by Stuart Pringle, Risk Transfer Consultant at Royal Union. Stuart, thanks so much for your time. Of course, the debate has been raging over SASRIA, the South African Special Risk Insurance Association, and the claims, the imminent claims that are being paid out with regard to the looting and the rioting that took place in July of this year in South Africa. And you've got some insights that you want to share. You're concerned about their capacity to pay out the claims. Can you just give us a high-level synopsis? Yes, no, 100%. So, I mean, if you if you think they've said that 40,000 businesses have been affected, let's just say that 25% of those had insurance. That's 10,000 businesses. 10,000 businesses, if you've got 10 claims handlers, it's 1,000 claims per claims handler. If you've got 100, I mean, you can do the maths. And for me, the numbers just don't add up. You know, you can't have a situation where people are waiting because they claim number 9,322 and they've got a query or there's a query on their claim and then it just goes to the bottom of the pile. Um, you know, you, you basically end up at the bottom and you've got to climb your way all up to the top. And these are p- people that need to start their businesses. They've been paying their insurance premiums by due date. And, and really, we need to make sure that as an industry, we get together to make sure that their claims are paid uh, timelessly. And I think that's the, that's the take-home message from this today. Now, the, the managing director, Cedric Masondo, has said that the nature of the claims, those that are short tail in nature, the smaller claims, will be paid in four to six weeks, and the larger claims will be paid within a year. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's it's the capacity issue that you are questioning, and whether... Sazria can actually make good on the promises when it comes to the timing of the payments. Agreed? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. I, I just don't think it's acceptable to have to wait for a year to have your claim paid. I mean, I've got, a, I've got one of my clients that uh, due to uh, lockdown um, and the Edcon group sort of uh, imploding, They've gone through business rescue. They're just starting to pull themselves out of business rescue. And now this has happened and they can't wait three, four, five, six, seven months to, to, to be paid. Their business won't be around anymore. And I mean, I don't know if you know how the clothing industry works, but you get specific periods of time in which you can put your, in which your order needs to be submitted. If it's a week late, they start giving penalties to you. If it's two weeks late, they just cancel the entire order. So if you're waiting on a payment so that you can buy new material, you can pay your suppliers, you can get all these bits and pieces, you're not going to be around in six months' time. And that's my point. 
my point, my, my point is, is that we need to get together as a group of, of you know, insurance brokers, the, the insurers themselves, SASRIA, government. Everybody needs to get together and say, you know, we cannot let this insurrection destroy completely the economy of, of KZN. There's obviously a large number of brokers in KZN. And because we're all working as individual companies, we don't sort of know exactly how many claims there are, how quickly they're being handled. We get to hear rumors and, and, and also, you know, we, we, we obviously deal with the loss adjusters that are dealing with these claims. And, and we get to hear that, you know, three or four interim payments have been made on bigger claims. I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't have, I can't substantiate those figures, but that's, that's what we're hearing. Sorry. Let's focus in specifically on the, on the client you, you're refer, referencing. Obviously, um, you, you don't need to disclose the name of that client. But sure. in terms of communication from Sazria with regard to their claim, what communication have they received to date? Okay, so basically uh, what happens is, is that the insurance companies uh, deal with the claims under a million. The ones that are over a million are dealt with by Sazria. And I think just due, literally to the capacity... It's very difficult to to phone through and 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 get through to a person and then discuss one or two of the of, of the issues with the, that you might be having with a claim. You can imagine we've got a, a 114 claims over a, over a million rand. So does our claims manager phone on a Monday morning or Tuesday and speak to somebody and ask for an update on all 114 claims? And there's another thousand brokers doing exactly the same thing. As I said to you, the numbers just do not add up for, for, for us. And, you know, you go onto the Sasria website, you go onto the Sasria uh, uh, Facebook page, you go into all those things and there's no, there's no clear update. Yes, they've told us they've got the capacity. Yes, they've told us they've got the money. And there's no reason to doubt that those aren't, things aren't going to happen. All I'm saying is, is that if you have to wait a year to have your claim paid, when you've paid your premiums every single year, there's just going to be large-scale losses of business. It, yeah. There's an additional clause which you referenced in your communique with regards to liquidation and that Sazria won't pay out once you are liquidated or and if you are yeah, under liquidation. So, so, correct? So my concern is more uh, around basically if a company becomes liquidated, then who is Sazria going to pay? And if the reason, if the reason why the company is liquidated is because they've waited five, six, seven months to be to be paid, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to explain it any other way, but I find that I, that I find it quite ridiculous that people can lose their businesses because we can't pay claims on time. I mean, I just, uh, it's ridiculous. Agreed. I mean, it, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Now, how is the industry coming together, and are you already gaining momentum in terms of? Uh, activating for urgent payment of claims from SASRIA? Certainly. So, um, I mean, uh, we're probably one of the most regulated industries uh, in, in, in South Africa. And we have the FIA, which um, is a, a body that speaks on behalf of all the intermediaries, which, are bro which brokers are. Then you've got the FSCA, and the FSCA is the governing body, the Financial Services Conduct Association. Um, and if you just go and read all their, um, what their, their sort of mission statements are and all of those things, it's all around treating customers fairly. And at the moment, I can understand the issues. I can understand the capacity issues. And all I'm saying is, is I don't want to be sitting in three or four months time 
and going, I wish we had spoken up. I wish we had got together as a group of professionals and made SASRI aware to say to them, take a step back and just look at the number of claims that you've had. Do the maths and, and, and then go, we cannot afford to not pay people for three, four, five, six months because of a capacity issue. I'm not saying that they, that, that they aren't able to uh, sort of do the job. They've got fantastic people there. Our president at one stage was, um, was one of, I think he was the chairman of SASRI around about 2003. So you can see the, the, the quality of the people that are going through there. The legislation that we've got in, in, in place is there to help the consumer and to make sure that clients are treated fairly. And at the moment, I just think it's a case of, there are so many claims that everybody is just jumping in to try and sort them out and we need to sort of uh, take a step back and, and, and have a look at it. Has this been escalated to the managing director, Cedric Masondo? Uh, has the insurance industry reached out to the managing director? Uh, yeah, so, so the, yeah, the, the insurance industry certainly reached out. Uh, Sasria has given... Um, the main, all, all the insurance companies, the mandate to settle claims up to a million rand. And we've seen quite a number of those claims getting, getting settled. So that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you can handle, if you can pass out claims that are under a million to the insurance companies and the insurance companies are effective, they've got far more claims uh, staff than, than, than SASRIA do. And those claims are, and interim payments are coming through for those claims. The concern is the claims that are over a million rand. Um, and, and, and again, I, I don't even know if it's particularly Sasria's fault, because if you think about it, if you've got 150 loss adjusters, and, and South Africa doesn't have 150 loss adjusters, unfortunately, um, but the, the amount of work that each of those people have to do, the amount of pressure that they're under, and they're going from one business to another, and then they've got to compile this report that's fairly comprehensive, well, it's very comprehensive, it's uh, sometimes fairly complicated, and they've, they've got to do all of those things. So they can't be hassled every five minutes being asked, hey, what's happening with my client's claim? What's happening with this claim? What's happening with that claim? Because they just won't have enough time to sit down and do the work that they've needed to do to get the claims paid. And again, as you say, the, the situation is unbelievable because the claims over a million rand, the bigger claims are, are potentially needed, as you gave the example earlier, in working capital in terms of getting goods uh, to market. So look at the solution now. Do we see, because there isn't time to, to go and, and uh, recruit uh, huge influx of employees for, for SASRIA. Are you advocating that where help from the mainstream insurance companies could actually be um, affected is that you could get temporary, uh, you know, upskill temporarily with employees from the insurance players to help process these claims? I mean, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying. So we've run for a couple of weeks with the big insurance companies being given claim settling uh, mandates and a pool of money from which to pay claims for. It's run successfully. So, you know, there's no real difference between paying a claim that's under a million and paying a claim that's over a million. It's still got to comply with the policy wording. It's, it's just the number of zeros on the end. So, yes, I understand business interruption claims are, are complex and take some time to settle. 
but certainly the material damage claims where you've you you know your stock has all been uh, destroyed or looted your building's been uh, damaged in a certain way you know how, how how does a business owner that that owns multiple uh, retail outlets and now he needs to order a new racking and shelving how does he pay the deposit for that must he mortgage his house you know the, the, these are the things that the average person in the street needs to be looked after they, 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 their businesses need to be cherished i mean they they're businesses that have been around for 10 20 30 40 years in some cases and they're hamstrung because they're waiting for their claims to be paid how how serious is the situation on the ground you reference uh, kwazulu natal and your clients when you talk to to other brokers other intermediaries out there is there a sense of panic among businesses that are not receiving their claims and and are not looking to receive their their larger claims anytime soon um sorry so i understand the question you mean, you mean is there panic amongst the 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 industry or is there uh, panic the, the amongst the, the people panic You know, the businesses out there that are desperate for the money to be paid so that they can continue um, with their their order of business. 100%. I mean, as as I said to you, you you can imagine if you've built up a business, you've opened up multiple branches, you employ hundreds, if not thousands of people, you've just got through COVID. Well, we're not, we're still in COVID. You've just got through hard lockdowns and all those types of things. And now your business has been destroyed, looted over three days. I I mean, a very good example that that I was thinking of earlier on was, you know, everybody um, sort of thinks that the, the, criticized the police and, and said, you know, the police, didn't stop people looting for three days and all these types of things. And and this is where I, I draw it straight back to the numbers game. You know, you you kind of have a police force in Hillcrest or Maritzburg or one of those types of places, and there might be 10, 15 police officers. There were thousands of people destroying people's businesses. The police just did not have the capacity to protect our businesses. And that's exactly what I'm saying here is that nobody's saying Sajria doesn't know how to do their job. Nobody's saying that they're, that, that they're not trying and they're not really looking at the situation. But the capacity and the numbers don't add up. So let's get together and sort it out as a as a, an industry. And the, the big insurance companies are there to help. And if we don't see the urgency taken on action to help with capacity, for Sazria to process these claims, what scenario will prevail? Well, I mean, I think it's it's, it's pretty simple. The guys that are that I mentioned earlier on um, in, in in the clothing industry, the some of the big retailers that we do. I mean, the businesses just won't be there anymore. Uh, you, you know, if you if you owe creditors a hundred hundred and twenty million, uh, there's only so long they're going to wait for you to pay. Uh, again, if it, if it takes a lot longer for you to get up and running again, your business interruption claim is going to be more. So there's so many different things that can actually be avoided if claims are settled timelessly. So really, I mean, the, the potential is for the bottom of, of economic growth to fall right out of KwaZulu-Natal if the situation isn't escalated and dealt with um, with the urgency required, Stuart. I mean, and that's what you're basically saying, and it's why you've engaged Biz News it's, in it's, terms of saying... It's, it's what I'm trying to avoid. 
Yes, it's 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 basically what I'm trying to avoid. I'm 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 looking at this thing and I'm going. You know, we we we've got a uh, we've got a fantastic team of, of of claims ladies that are that are working tirelessly, but there's only so much that they can do. And and you know, if you look at Sazria's business model and the and and the way that it works, they rely on 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 brokers to advise clients on what the policy will pay out on and that they should take the cover and and all those things. So we just we need to start paying people. We need to we need to we need we need to show people that that we're an industry that that treats customers fairly and it's that simple. Well, we'll certainly reach out and, and we have been reaching out to, to Sazria trying to, to get that interview, um, down with them. Uh, we'll continue pursuing Cedric Masondo, who's the managing director mm. of Sazria and, uh, certainly take your voice further. Thank you very much, Stuart, for sharing your views and for putting the urgency that this deserves to the, the situation that is unfolding. Uh, Stuart Pringle is the Risk Transfer Consultant at Royal Union. Thank you very much for your time. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Rima Sakhan, CEO of BritBox, British streaming service, which is coming to South African stores very shortly. Rima, just by way of introduction, could you just give us some background on BritBox? Sure. Hi, Justin. Thank you very much for having me on. So, BritBox is sort of what it does, what it says on the can. Uh, it's a British streaming service. It's a joint venture backed by the BBC and ITV, so a 50-50 joint venture, and got into the British streaming game uh, back in 2017 with the first launch in the United States, rolled out to Canada, then launched in the UK, uh, recently launched in Australia and South Africa, actually launched last week. So it's up, running and live in South Africa. The on-demand streaming industry has become very competitive all over the globe. Why South Africa? I mean, on-demand streaming is just, as you say, ubiquitous and everywhere. And clearly the way people really are enjoying watching TV and having, you know, huge amounts of choice that we've never seen before. For BritBox to enter the game against the big American giants, we knew that we needed, you know, something really distinctive and different. And we feel we have that. You know, we've got a very distinctive point of difference. We're not trying to be a Netflix with the next thing to add if you just love this way of watching and you love British content. And why else would you go anywhere else for British content if you've got all of the BBC and all of ITV in one place? Um, and so what comes out after that is obviously really you know, great growth streaming markets, but also great British affinity markets. And South Africa has always been a really fertile territory for UK content and both from a sort of people who've lived in the UK and South Africans going back to South Africa, expats in South Africa, a, a generally similar taste and sensibility. And so it was a natural next step for us. Both the BBC and ITV have had successful TV channels, businesses uh, in the market. Um, a couple of those closed recently, a couple of closed last year. And so there's definitely a gap in terms of where people were looking to go for, for content and an on-demand service that does that for them all in one place, as opposed to in lots of channels all over the place is just a bit of a no-brainer, actually. And who are you looking to take market share from? Is it more of the multi-choice, the DSTV, which is more of our television provider? Or is it those American giants, the Netflix, the Disney Pluses, the Amazon Primes? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say it's not a sort of zero sum game in streaming because it's growing so quickly and actually people are watching more. So the pie is growing as well as moving from linear TV channels into on demand viewing. Um, and so we don't really look at it in terms of who are we stealing share from. It's more kind of can we ride that wave of popularity and, and the way that people want to watch. And as I say, it's sort of you know, if you love American stuff, there's loads of great streamers for that. If you love UK stuff, it's a bit harder to go to know where to go to. And so this, I think, is a really complimentary sort of service for people to add to their sort of repertoire of, of channels and services. It definitely doesn't try and do the scale or the type of content that, that the big US streamers uh, are doing. There's lots of opportunity for linkages in also with the satellite providers. Lots of them are carrying some of those streaming services as part of their bundles now as well. So it's quite a sort of complex thing to say, actually, you know, this is going to land and then steal share from elsewhere. I think the good news is that in this world, sort of everybody is is growing and benefiting because people are genuinely watching more and particularly in the last year have been watching more. And from a pricing perspective, where are you guys at? Are you guys competitive against the likes of those American giants? I know, for instance, in South Africa, multi-choice is offering is a little bit more expensive. You're paying around 700 Rand a month for their premium subscription. What are your yeah. pricing points like? Yeah, I mean, we peg ourselves, you know, just beneath the big majors. And, and that's because, you know, we're sort of specialist and boutique and, and run that. But it's a super premium product. I mean, the quality of it so you know it's it's 99.99 per month uh, with a one week free trial and then there's an annual plan you can buy as well at 999 for the whole year uh, which gets you two months free as well so you know it's really competitively priced I think versus the the quite significant contract commitments that sometimes people have to make but that's also the beauty of streaming really is that it's quite easy in there's always a free trial you can do it on a monthly basis a, a lot more flexible than I think TV packages have been in the past. And what other jurisdictions are you targeting for growth going forward? You said that's. I mean, it's world domination, obviously. No, I'm joking. (laughs) You did say, and which I found very interesting was that South African viewers love the unique British content. So I wouldn't say that would be unique to other developing economies, but which other jurisdictions are you looking at? Yeah, as you say, you know, we've got lots of experience of where British content exports well. Uh, and so, you know, they are the markets that we are already in. We're also looking at parts of Europe where UK quality content does really, really well. There's parts of Asia, Latin America, you know, there's pockets of real strength everywhere. I think what's really interesting, though, particularly with digital platforms, is that you can switch on territories quite easily. It's you know, app-based, you can turn on and light up territories relatively easily compared to things like satellite and cable access and and those sorts of things. So we've got a really open mind um, uh, as to where next. You know, we we know that there's real pockets of strength in the rest of Africa. We're very interested in that. It would it would make a lot of sense for us to extend that. We've talked about getting to a number of around 25 markets, which is, you know, small in the you know shadow of 191 territories that Netflix operates in but but clearly it's a much more select process for us to do that but we're really excited because you can you know try as you go and you can test these things and research them 
until you're blue in the face. And sometimes you just have to, you know, go for it, launch in a market and and, and see how it flies. So the, the other thing that's happening is, you know, international television is really t- making strides. So we now find ourselves, you know, we're watching French dramas, we're watching Spanish dramas, we're watching Israeli dramas in a way that I don't think five years ago was really happening. And a lot of that is to do with streaming, opening up windows and access to things we wouldn't have watched before. And so, you know, I never, I sort of never say never in terms of, in terms of where something like Brewbox could work, sort of the enduring quality and just the length of time and the back catalogue we have as well as all of the new shows we bring just means that we've got an awful lot to play with in terms of putting together a great quality offering. Staying on the general industry I was on a Netflix conference call recently and they say that the streaming era has just begun the runway is huge are you guys extrapolating those kind of numbers yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's where it's so hard. You know, I think anyone that makes predictions in this space and says, oh, it's definitely going to be this. It's really only just begun. If you, if you put it in the context of television, you know, we're, we're at the foothills of really having data and learning to say there are hard and fast rules. You know, it's a big disruptor in the world's, you know, biggest entertainment sector. So I think, you know, we have to bear in mind that we keep open to the type of content that's going to, you know, it's all really been, the engine room has been scripted. However, we see, you know, real strength on BritBox in terms of lifestyle programming, cookery, gardening, things that, you know, previously haven't necessarily been what you would turn to streaming for, you know, reality, entertainment shows, it's sort of, there's a whole new world of how streaming services, I think, can present uh, content to people live is really moving into the heart of of streaming and before it's always been you know it's a kind of catalog so you go through and you pick on demand and now you know live events in streaming are the next big thing and over time it just becomes more like the whole world of entertainment and television rather than than what it was so it's super exciting I think there's so many opportunities that the delivery platform allows you to do and from a consumer point of view it's so easy and you know accessible that you know it doesn't have a lot of the risks around trying new things that I think um, previous entertainment and linear television has had. I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I wasn't going to be the devil's advocate here but despite this huge runway is the market not becoming a bit, or the industry rather, not becoming a bit diluted? It seems almost similar to passive investing. It's a race to zero fees, <laughs> to put it that way. Yeah, it's a really good point. Look, you know, the flip side of consumers have never had it so good is that it was impossible to get all this amazing quality, all of this choice, all of this flexibility at such a low price ever before, because it's an expensive product to make, you know, this is really still the same stuff, but presented in a different way. So scale is really, really important, reaching critical mass of scale. But there's also lots of really new, interesting funding models and the ways in which, you know, television is being made that allows for more flexibility within that. I mean, I think, you know, it's not a blip. It's definitely here to stay. I think, you know, back to what I was saying at the beginning, having a really pointy proposition. Why why do you get noticed? Why you? Are people clear about what they go to you for? And I think in some sense, some of the bigger generalists and the bigger studios that are creating their own services have got a little bit of sameness to them. Okay, if I want big, you know, 
US shiny content, where do I go? Well, I can name you 10, you know. And so I think being sure that you are clear what your purpose is and what people come to you for and that you really carve out your distinctive positioning is as important as, you know, then making sure that you keep your scale and growth your pricing doesn't isn't a race to the bottom as you say because yeah we, we could all just you know engineer ourselves out of uh, out of a profitable business yeah i'm justin roberts of biz news and you've been listening to rima sarkhan chief executive officer of brickbox well thanks for being with us from me justin roberts and the rest of the biz news team we'll see you same time same place tomorrow Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.